Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Let's talk about what Element 451 can do for you. Element 451 delivers the enrollment management technology your team needs to successfully recruit and enroll a class. The secure cloud-based platform consists of modules that cover everything from student search to admitted yield. And the core functionality tying it all together makes your admissions and enrollment operation run more efficiently. It's the one and done admission software. Check out Element 451 at element451.com. That's element451.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond, having a little fun along the way. My name is Dr. Joe Lustio. I just am so excited. I remembered to say my name today. Always with me, the amazing Liz. Liz, how are you? I'm good. I was so happy. I literally did a fist pump when you said Dr. Joe Salucio. I was so proud of you. Well, I have a, a piece of paper in front of me. It has <laughs> check boxes and things I'm supposed to say. And my name, it says, say your name with a checkbox that I can now check. So gotcha. I'm gotcha. happy about that. And uh, mm. speaking of, of lists, Liz, and I think this is an important thing for us to talk about. Um, you are, our, uh, I think you are on the list to get a COVID vaccine. Is that correct? And, um, <laughs> You are um, now your husband, he works in a medical field. Yes. We're waiting to see if he, how he would come out of it before you fully committed. Right, right. Actually, you know, the funny thing is he, um, he usually gets sick. Like he's the kind of person that gets colds and flu. Anytime anything is flu season, he always gets sick. He got the, the vaccine and he was, I didn't even realize he got it. He told me he was going to get it. And then he was like, yeah, I got it like a few days ago. And I was like, but you, you seem fine. He's like, no, I, it was just normal. So yeah, he was fine. He took it, no symptoms, no anything. So I guess I'm safe now because he was uh, the guinea pig. <laughs> when are you, the question now becomes, when will you get it? You know, the funny thing is I was real scared to get it. But now that I saw that he got it and he was fine, I get called. I have to wait to get called because as, as a spouse, I can get it now since he's exposed in the facility. So I just have to wait for the health department to call me up. And when they do, I'm just going to go get it. So. Well, there you go. So yeah. you know what? You're going to uh, you're going to get that vaccine. And then you know what you're going to do? What? Absolutely nothing. You'll probably still be stuck in your house. Like the I rest will. You know, I don't go anywhere. I do Uber Eats and like Instacart. So yeah, but that's okay. So speaking of somebody sitting around in their house right now. I love that segue. You like, do you like that? Good job. Uh, Good job. We have an incredible guest for you today. I'm very excited to talk with her on the line right now. We have Charlie Javis. She is founder and CEO of Frank. Charlie, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me here. As we get through this episode, Charlie, it's important for you to tell us first, what is Frank and what you guys do there? Yeah, of course. So we started Frank about three and a half years ago, and today we serve um, over 4 million students when it comes to all their financial aid needs. And when we started the company, it was really important for us to take an approach to personal finance, similar to healthcare. 
and look at it through the preventive lens because there were all these companies focusing on what happens when you have student debt, how to manage it, how to budget it, how to refinance, and all of this kind of things that happen on the back end. And our thesis was very simple. We believe that if you can help a student before they get into college and help them navigate the challenging process and make better decisions, we hope that students will have better outcomes. And so that's kind of how Frank was born. And we start at the very beginning of the student journey when they're starting to think about how to pay for college. We have a resource center of financial literacy content and education of thousands and thousands of videos and articles and anything somebody might ask that comes up, all the way to helping students file a FAFSA, find scholarships, look at and apply to state aid, aid appeals, emergency grants, and now recently um, discounts on college courses at over 400 different colleges and universities in the US, which is super exciting. So we're all about helping students pay less for college um, and you know, do that before they get into a lifetime of debt. Yeah, you know, <laughs> a lifetime of debt, that, that does sum up uh, my, many people who have, um, gone the college route, maybe not been as successful as they wanted to be. They are looking at mounting debt now. And it's something that, as you know, it's a, it's a, a touchy issue in our political system right now. And, and the, the idea of loan forgiveness and, and what that's, what are we going to do about that? But before I ask you that question, because I'm sure you have a lot to say, I'm going to leave that one. That's kind of the big one for later. You got to wait till later to listen, uh, listen to the answer um, that Charlie's going to give. But I do want to start by talking about the simplification, quote unquote, of the FAFSA. For now, sure. if the FAFSA is simpler, it's going to be that much more easy, right? You get anybody, you know, uh, can just go and apply for financial aid now. They don't really need any help because the FAFSA is so easy, right, Charlie? Of course, you would you would think that happens, um, and I think people even said FAFSA is simple. I'll, I'll never forget like the there was this comedy video online, and it was uh, Michelle Obama at the time trying to explain how FAFSA is so easy, and it was a game show. And it basically was asking students um, what their name was and trying to say, look how simple FAFSA is. You know, the first question is, what's your name? And a student's there, you know, asking for help. Um, and so calls Michelle Obama and it's like, what's your name, sweetheart? And then gives her name. And so it was just trying to kind of lighten up the mood around something that is so, you know, really, really anxiety ridden and something that people don't know about, something that is just really scary. And so unfortunately, um, I'm not as hopeful when it comes to FAFSA simplification for a whole bunch of reasons, including the fact that they have continuously said every year that they have simplified and succeeded at it. But we all know what government technology and software really looks like. Um, and all you have to do is really go on the app store and see how wonderfully rated the experience is for students who can't even get past the third screen. So you're saying now, what I hear you saying is that even within the, the simplification, because I think it comes down to like eight questions now, right? Or seven questions. 
No. But, well, <laughs> so, at categorical, uh, right? That's the way it's being sold is that it went from 156 exactly. something questions to eight questions. But those eight questions are like categorical questions now. They're not really eight simple questions. There's sub questions and check boxes and field <laughs> fillings you have to do. How, how does that... So, so that's what I'm asking you is, is it really a question? question. So it's, it's a really great question because whoever wrote the spill and and whoever's behind it did a wonderful job selling it, right? FAFSA simplification is something that everyone can and should get behind because it's so needed. In effect, what really happened was if you take the paper form, meaning the PDF that you could print out on FAFSA.gov that you then need to manually write with a pen, paper, ink, and then mail with a stamp that you buy to the Department of Ed, um, then that form has 130 something different questions, I believe. And so if you take that form on paper, then you're narrowing it down to, I would say, close to 40 or so questions, and they all still have subparts and A, B, C, D, and E, but it's still obviously a huge savings on paper. That being said, a very low percentage of students obviously fill out FAFSA on paper. They're filling it out online, which is the primary channel that they're actually getting financial aid through. And online, there's already the data retrieval tool. So in essence, All FAFSA simplification is, is when you get to the data retrieval tool, you then, instead of putting in a username and password, you check a checkbox. So it's really only taking two data fields and condensing it into one. Um, So I would not say this is something revolutionary, um, but it was sold as such. And I'll never forget people rejoicing and shredding the paper form. I think the the question to them is really like, where have you been? Because people have not used this paper form really in the past 10, 20 years at this point, but at least- Uh, Don't um, be so sure when it comes to higher (laughs) education, Charlie. Exactly, like it's just not the majority of people. So the paper form, lots of improvement, obviously the the main way people fill it out digitally is really not that big of an improvement. Um, But it's amazing to see that there is such renewed focus because we know firsthand that FAFSA completion is directly linked to low-income student enrollment. And that is super, super important. And any attention this topic really is, is needed and something that I truly applaud by everybody. That's a great time for you to come in, Liz, because I know that's an area of passion for you as the um, low-income students being able to access higher ed. Yeah, for sure. And I, as a first-generation student, I remember filling out the FAFSA and I have this vivid memory of myself completing it during school, like during like a math class or something. And we were supposed to be like working on our assignments like on our own. And it was like me and some of the um, the, the other uh, of my friends that we all ended up going to um, camp the same college together. And I just remembered that just kind of feeling a little bit defeated as I was going through all those pages as I'm one of the dinosaurs that actually did fill out the paper version. And it felt so Stop overwhelming. Aging yourself, Stop yourself, I it. know, but I couldn't go to my mom. My mom didn't go to college. My mom's a nurse, but she was an LPN. She was a diploma nurse. So she didn't go to college. So she just like, just go fill it out. I don't know, go ask somebody at the school. So I know how that feels. 
And I want to ask Charlie, uh, just ask someone that experienced that and, and knows how hard it is to apply for financial aid, navigate scholarships, um, everything that goes on with the financial aspect of college. I'm really a fan of an origin story. And I feel as though this is something so needed. So as, as Charlie just talked about, the idea that financial aid is so tied to outcomes and students from marginalized backgrounds even going to college. How did you come up with this resource and, and how have you been able to get the word out? Because you, you're serving so many students. How has it grown and, and what was your original uh, vision when you thought of even having something like this? Because I'm like, when I was in high school, this would have been a great resource because we had no clue and we only had two guidance counselors for like 2000 students. So I can see this would be really helpful for those uh, schools and um, districts that are underfunded and, and under-resourced. For sure, whether it's districts, but also adult learners and, and just adding the importance of low-income first-gen enrollment. About 49% of the students we serve are first-gen, close to 40% are minority students. And the income levels are truly between 40 and $60,000 is our sweet spot for a household. And independent students, so above the age of 24, typically are earning much less than $40,000 when they come to us. So we've really focused on, I would say, the, the students who need us most, given the under-resourced you know, nature of this, where college counselors can't be everywhere, especially for adult learners. When I started the company about you know, three and a half, four years ago, the main, the main thing that triggered me was both kind of a, a personal experience with financial aid, but also I think it starts way earlier of just like very, being very passionate and thankful um, from, you know, your education. And I grew up in a household where my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. They had to flee countries. And the only thing and most important thing that they've taught me was if you have to pick up and leave, the only thing you leave with is your education. And if you could pay it forward, it's the most meaningful thing you can do. And so it's always been extremely important from a family perspective to invest in your education as well as give back in that realm. Um, and when I went to college, um, I graduated in 2010 and my, you know, my dad after 08 had not had a job for a few years and I ended up needing financial aid and going through it, both my super privileged and lucky, both my parents have master's degrees, but they were divorced and they couldn't figure it out. And they didn't want to share financial information with each other. It was so painful. I got in early to the school that, that I went to and trying to actually like potentially not be able to enroll because of financial aid um, to the school of my dreams was just like completely heartbreaking. And we spent six months going back and forth, appealing aid and, and all the above. Um, and so, you know, being super self-conscious around costs, um, I made it my business to graduate in three years. My brother's 14 months younger, and I thought I was saving my parents money. And little did I know that's not how financial aid works. Um, to have two children at an Ivy League school at the same time or to have one is the same price. So me graduating early did not save my parents one penny. So that was completely confusing to me. And I, you know, having my background on the impact investing side and having a large nonprofit when I was in college focused on social impact investing and seeing it also, you know, how student debt just drives 
where you go to work and how happy you are at the job, you know, the whole thing just came together and just had to do something about it. Um, and so that's kind of the origin story and really um, just really humbled to be in this space and to be serving so many students who trust us and to have really built kind of a student advocate and authentic voice in the space, because I think it's super needed to stand up for students to fully be aligned with them, because sometimes we forget that, you know, you have banks and colleges and government, and they aren't necessarily fully aligned with students' needs all the time. So it's wonderful to kind of have that freedom um, to be there and truly kind of represent the student always first. Absolutely. I love these, everything that you're saying resonates with me really well. And I, and I love the idea of standing up and being an advocate, especially for students that are first gen, marginalized students. Um, yourself, you talked about the idea of not understanding some of the repercussions and, and that pain of just being so overwhelmed with how financial aid is affected by different um, personal situations that are happening in your family. So I, I, I totally respect and understand how do we make college more affordable and, and what can we do to really help students long-term so that we get a handle and Joe kind of alluded to this already, but I, I noticed that you have posted some time ago about unbundling college. And that's really a very um, novel concept that a lot of, we talk about it, Joe and I have talked about it and we've talked about oh, it yeah. a little with some guests, but what are your thoughts about that? What is that um, proposal or, or I guess uh, philosophy as far as how we might be able to I, even the idea of financial aid being tied to a certain number of credit hours. And then if I've been in a situation where, you know, I was struggling as a first-gen student, I had to drop classes, but then it can affect your financial aid. There's so many different things that make financial aid very complicated and confusing. What is that? What do you think about the whole idea of unbundling? Yeah, I, I think you guys are, are at the forefront of the space, especially when it comes to instructional design and just how good online courses can be, which kind of accelerated, I would say, unbundling because it increases access. But the whole thing behind it is always how do we give and shift the power from the college to the student? And how do we give students options to best succeed and to do so at a price point that they can afford? And as we see a lot of the education world shift online um, and the costs spin out of control, one of the biggest frustrations for families during COVID was why, where is the value if I'm learning online? Why should I be paying $3,500 for a class when the community college teaches the same class with the same textbook and you know, has a better online experience because those teachers are, or professors are used to teaching online. And so I think what we're seeing is students, instead of caring as much about the brand and the name of where they're going, they are caring a lot more about the content, the experience of learning the content, how flexible the content is, like asynchronous learning. And I think unbundling the degree gives people a lot more freedom and flexibility, both in the amount of courses available to them and the breadth of you know, majors and topics and types of professors and learning styles, as much as you know, it, it is much more affordable to be able to mix and match your classes, especially for your gen eds, which are truly not that differentiated anywhere you go. So I think it's a trend that we'll continue to see. I'm a huge advocate for streamlining transfer credit process specifically with financial aid to make it a lot more seamless so people can truly 
you know, explore and have kind of an open university experience. This is something Israel's higher ed system does very well. It's something, um, you know, we could definitely learn from different models around the world because, you know, I, I think we have some catching up to do in some areas and this could be one of them. But happy to see that it's been accelerated with COVID and all of the online remote learning trends. I'm so glad you said that. I'm going to let Joe jump back in because I know he just has a lot of thoughts and questions about this. But I just want to just say that I'm so glad you talked about Israel's model because me being from the UK and a lot of people when they find out from the UK, they get disappointed. It's almost like when they find out that. Yeah, I just why don't you have stuff. that accent? Yeah, exactly. It's like when I, we all watch The Wire and when people find found out that Idris Elba was from the UK, people are like, what? How is that, right? So I'm the same way. People are always like, how can you be from the UK? But I am. And <laughs> I feel as though there are so many models, like the we talked about with Michael Horowitz uh, from the TCS system about the three-year college degree, um, which is very uh, popular or sure. prevalent in Europe, right? So there's so many different models around the world. And I think sometimes with the United States and, and, and our educational system and even other systems, whether it's healthcare, other institutions, we seem to get very focused on what we do here and not really look outside. And I think COVID, like you said, has made us think, hey, New Zealand was handling COVID pretty well or this country, or that country. And now we're starting to look more globally that we all are intertwined, even though the United States is still huge and is still a leader in many areas. We definitely have a lot of things that we can learn. And I definitely agree with you, Charlie, that education, especially higher education, is one area that we can probably look at other models and try to expand beyond. And, and Joe and I talk about this all the time, the idea of change and how in U.S. education system, particularly higher education, we have been a little resistant to change. And the idea that you're exposing and, and talking about different models, um, kudos to you, because that's really what we're all about, trying to talk about different models <laughs> and, and try to do things in different ways so that we can expand. And, and, and the, the bottom line is helping the students. So I, I really uh, appreciate and admire what you're doing. It's, uh, it's, it's very admirable. I come from a French education system for K-12, so gotcha. I've been driven home hard and, and very close to A-levels and the Brits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so do you speak French, uh, Charlie? I do. All right. Well, and you and, uh, and Liz, you, you have the Queen's English in there somewhere, don't you? <laughs> the Queen's English. That's so funny. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, what well, questions did you have? I'm sure you have a ton of questions because you you were like no, I I do. You coming off a of mute like five times. I, I'm, I, I try. I do this thing where I'm like, eh, and then you guys just, you know, keep going. So yeah, because there's right so much to talk about. Financial aid is huge impact on students. And, and like Charlie was talking about, the, the accessibility piece is really big. So I know you have a ton of uh, innovative ideas about what we need to do. And I know student debt was something that you had a lot of questions about as well. Yeah, and that's the, the, let's talk about the debt issue a little bit, Charlie. Obviously, it's a flashpoint, as I said before, of our administration. Liz and I have talked about it at length. I, I think we have, I don't know if we have different views on it, but we certainly have, we, we have our own opinions on how student debt, we, we know we have a student debt problem. There's no doubt about that, right? There are a lot of students that have debt. That's the simple tenant of student loan debt is there's a lot of students that have debt and and the negative amortization that can be created as a result of that because their discretionary income is not be able to uh, pay for the interest that's uh, being bear on those loans so on and so forth if debt's forgiven isn't that a good thing are you ready to reimagine your admissions and enrollment marketing Wherever you are in the admissions CRM selection process, Element 451 is here to help you. Now, why check them out? Well, 
Element 451 empowers admissions and enrollment teams to work more efficiently as they develop stronger, more personalized engagements with prospective students. Their cloud-based admissions, marketing, and enrollment CRM platform is powerful, yet easy to use. Complicated systems are exactly that, complicated. At its core are two of the most important ingredients for working smarter, automation and analytics. At Element 451, you get enrollment experts, marketers, engineers, data magicians, and thought leaders with decades of experience working in higher ed and ed tech to help you streamline your systems for more effective and greater yield. Visit them at element451.com. That's element451.com. Well, I, I, I can't say it's good or bad. I think it just requires beforehand an explanation of the framework as to how you look at student debt and, and the options to be able to go down to kind of solve this issue. Because right now, student debt, unfortunately, has been very much blamed on students and then sometimes on private lenders, though that discourse has ended since that crazy Senate hearing where you had senators asking JP Morgan why they were involved in student debt and how terribly they were doing. And JP Morgan was like, I haven't lent to any students since like 2010. Um, and so people have realized that lenders here are not the ones to blame. The two parties that they typically blame, one is the student and then potentially the government. Um, funny enough, the college is usually left out unless it's a for-profit college, which typically gets demonized. And when I think about student debt, I think about it from a purchasing perspective, right? Students have chosen to spend about $670 billion a year paying for college tuition. That is a crazy number. And the question becomes, when you talk about student loan forgiveness, what does that really mean? To me, it means that students are requesting a refund on a product or service that did not meet their expectations. And, you know, in the US, we are very lucky to have an amazing culture of customer care and customer service, whether it's that famous Nordstrom legend where, you know, you, you return a tire to Nordstrom and they don't even sell tires to lifetime warranties to 100% satisfaction, or you get guarantee. Higher ed is not like that at all. And so it's like, don't worry if you drop out, you still owe us money. If you, you know, don't have a job, you still owe us money. Um, and we've shifted the blame to students who I do not believe are to blame at all. They, there's the job market is the way that it is. If they aren't in school, it's probably because they dropped out um, because they didn't see the value, whether it's a you know healthcare problem or a financial aid problem, or just found a job and couldn't afford to be there. They voted with their feet and therefore are not there. Um, and when I think about kind of the, the refund, there is a, a huge amount of background in this space when it comes to for-profit schools. If for-profit schools did not meet the expectation and potentially misled students in the settlement, there is always an element of the school owing money back to the students for the harm that they've caused. And for some reason, 
because this problem has gotten so big and schools are so underwater, it seems like colleges are simply too big to fail. And instead of the burden going back to the university to be refunding students, the government's, which is really the taxpayer, ends up paying. And so if we look at it through that lens, the question's like, why isn't this being considered the same as any bailout of any other industry? Whether it was the financial crisis in 2008, whether it's the airlines, whether it was cruises, there are always strings attached. There's always something to lead to better accountability, higher standards, better ways of doing business. But in higher ed, for some reason, the conversation is let's potentially forgive student loans or push students into income-driven plans or something, but we are not pursuing that same level of accountability when it comes to colleges. And so if I had to think of a solution, if we are gonna have some level of student debt forgiveness, whether it's you know bigger tax breaks um, and, and thinking about tax deductions, whether it's, looking at student loan repayment and just forgiving $10,000 or $50,000 of debt, whether it's students moving into income-driven plans, there should be an element of accountability and an improvement of standards for schools to remain open and operate. And they should be very actively part of this discussion. And they should really be you know, equally to blame, um, more so than the student at this point. And so how do we become better as an industry? How do we scale student services so that we meet the promise that schools are saying, which is come to college, you'll have a great experience, you'll graduate with a job. That promise is broken. We have 65% or more of students who graduate who are unemployed or, un or employed in areas that do not require a college degree. And so we have to change the cost structure or the value or the way we're selling degrees to align it with what's actually happening in reality and fully disclose to students what they're signing up for at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, the one thing, the one thing I always say, and I think about this issue because I, you know, for, for students who are in debt that don't have a job and you look at the student as a consumer and, and maybe they didn't get what they thought they were going to get, or maybe they dropped out and now they have this debt, there's going to be some benefit to debt relief. My question is always, though, what happens next when you consider student loan debt cancellation? It only is helping the people who've taken debt right now or have the debt right now. Exactly. The, per the person who graduates tomorrow, the person who mm -hmm. graduates in one month or in six weeks or in 60 weeks or six years, it's not helping them at all. And so the program, the, the program, the problem represents itself in how many days or years, right? It completely it presents itself over again. So unless there's some component, maybe a K through 12 component that comes with de debt relief, where, where it's so a, a federal mandate to start teaching financial responsibility in X grade. So you understand, you know, uh, uh, interest and you understand not taking more money than you need. And, and the, you understand that quitting something when you borrow money and you quit, that's not good for your financial situation. The literacy, the financial literacy we teach in K through 12 is not robust enough to really prepare the student to understand how this is going to affect them in the future. So all you're doing is just alleviating a little bit of a problem now to just have the program, the problem represent itself 
down the line. And that doesn't make any sense to me because it doesn't solve anything. That's well, my generally my position. Yeah, and, and I, I, I guess to a certain extent that's true, but my thought process as well, and this is something I struggle with and maybe Charlie can um, chime in just based on her experience, maybe being, seeing things from more of a, a global perspective. I think that here in the United States, we don't necessarily look at education or healthcare, some of these institutions as a public good. Like I, I feel as though K through 12, no one would expect a, a sixth grader or an eighth grader to understand the, the concept of how K through 12, how those teachers are funded and how the school districts are funded. Cause it's very complicated for myself. I'm a former K through 12 teacher. I taught eighth grade American history. So there's some, I think, I, a, amount of, well, where does the responsibility lie? Is it on the student, the 18-year-old who can't vote or barely can vote, can bear just about, uh, I, I went to college at 17. So when you're that age, you're really not old enough to, you, you barely got your driver's license. You, you're not really an adult in the sense of you're an adult technically, but you can't vote. You can, there's so many things that you can't do, but you're able to take out $20,000 worth of student loans or $50,000 worth of student loans. And even with financial literacy classes, a lot of students like uh, Charlie talks about are coming from very marginalized backgrounds where there's still a lot of a disconnect between wealth, opportunity, access, um, you know, the, there's, there's literally, I think for me, when I went to college, I was so unprepared for everything that was involved with the college experience as far as the financial aspects of it. And I think as a country, we're not necessarily taking responsibility for what is our responsibility to prepare the next generation to take because we're going to be eating applesauce in a, in a nursing home. These students that are going to college right now and are graduating or students like my son is only six in 20 years. What are we saying that, you know, we're just as a country going to be like, well, this prepare you better, but student uh, tuition is still going to be skyrocketing through the roof. And hey, you know, just understand that a college degree costs you $100,000 and just know that that's your responsibility. I, I don't really think that's the solution no. either. What do you, Charlie, you have posted about tuition discounts. What are your thoughts about making college yeah. more affordable? So these conversations start at the core, which is that college is too expensive. Yeah, so I would just comment on on one thing because I, I do think it's important when you talk about student loan forgiveness that individually it is needed. The question is, is if you grant it without granting some level of relief or accountability on the other side, that becomes a scary proposition. But I don't think anybody is arguing that there is a huge need to forgive student loans because this whole system doesn't work for the student and they're currently bearing 100% of the risk. So there needs to be some level of recognition and something to be done. But the question is timing. Are you willing to do that without doing what's needed to prevent the next generation from ending up where we are today? When it comes to tuition discounts, I think this is a, this is a really big part of college access because 
everyone has sticker shock. And so when you say how important are tuition discounts, they're super important. I think schools are basically their net price is about 60% of the costs listed on their website. And it deters a lot of low income families from being, you know, from applying um, to schools that they really should be applying to, as well as just being undermatched. And so it's a huge issue. Um, we've, you know, tried working to solve that within our FAFSA flow. We will help recommend um, different schools that could potentially have better outcomes um, and have an affordable kind of net income price for you, which would be comparable to what you're looking at for your local community college. But it's, it's something that really needs to clean up and it's almost criminal to post one price and then discount it. And then you turn to your friend who, you know, has the same situation, but decided, you know, one day that financial aid officer was in a good mood and gave him $2,000 more than your family. And there's just no transparency. And so, you know, even healthcare is more transparent on prices than education. And so I think a lot of the legislation that should be going with student loan forgiveness should have a data and trans pricing transparency component, should have an element of if you're not graduating at least 70% of your students, maybe you should not be allowed to enroll more of them until you get your numbers up. And then maybe people will start focusing on the student service element, on the career service element, on things that make a school valuable versus marketing dollars, which gives you revenue. And I think that's the key trade-off of what we should be doing when we talk about student loan forgiveness. So there is an accountability, there is a better path forward for the future. And I do believe it's achievable. And I'm, I'm really hopeful and optimistic that we can get this right. So when an institution, so talk to me a little bit more about Frank, Charlie, you are really working for the student consumer. You partner with the university on on uh, perhaps on uh, on class uh, discounts or whatever else, but you're really working for the individual consumer. Is that right? Yeah. So our student always comes first. Um, we have not, you know, when when we launched the company and we're we're lucky to have very supportive investors. We are a for profit, you know, ed tech fintech company. Um, the whole plan was your one KPI or your one metric you should care about is how many students can you possibly serve and how fast can you serve them, and that's kind of our, our North Star, which is how do we increase our impact? What came after that and starting to work with schools was actually being able to close the data loop to show how impactful and meaningful it is to provide a student service around financial aid, which is you know probably the most important consideration specifically for you know, low-income students. And so when we set out, um, schools provide us as a benefit to their students. So it's kind of like they're, they're paying because they want a dedicated support team. They want their branding on the website. And they basically want us to have white glove treatment of their students. And we've seen amazing impact. Our white paper came out. We worked with a 40,000, you know, student community college um, with best in class enrollment teams. And we followed one full enrollment cycle over the period of six to eight weeks. 
and we saw FAFSA completion increase by over three times. We saw the amount of uh, how the speed of students starting class, instead of it taking you know eight weeks to enroll someone, we started seeing people starting in two weeks because they'd finished their financial aid and yields were up by 20%. Another great thing is the enrollment advisors and the financial aid administrators were not on the phone with students dealing with technical issues with the government. And so they saw huge savings when it came to their time and effort spent chasing down FAFSAs and ICERs and going through that whole process. And the wonderful part about this is they saw it as a huge element of investing in accessibility and um, equity and affordability because with the internet situation that's going on, most people still don't have desktops at home. We are really the only mobile solution that works for students. And um, they could get support and chat and call and text and complete their FAFSA on their phone. 83% of them do in under five minutes, which is super awesome. So we also have all the reminders and automation so that they don't stop at FAFSA. We use the FAFSA data to recommend scholarships. We help them find the appropriate state aid. We then, once they get their aid award letter, can help them think about appealing um, their financial aid to further the tuition discounts, and we can introduce them to potentially class finder transfer credits that start at $300 versus, you know, the, the higher increments public, uh, public college in state, I think is about $900 for the, for the credits course. So all those fun things are great, but we've seen an amazing impact and we're finally, you know, closing the data loop now that we're working with colleges and it blew us away just how impactful and how correlated, um, you know, financial aid is to successful enrollment. Well, guys, you know, the, the one piece you said in there is yield rates going up, you know, 20%. I think it's funny. And I've said this before, and Liz, you probably know this, working in the for-profit sector, you know, getting your student all tied up in financial aid was part of the sales cycle, not, it, it wasn't something that happened later. I mean, I remember we used to measure same-day financial aid packaging as a metric, as a performance metric, because we didn't want the student to leave. This is back in the days when student would visit your campus. We didn't want them to leave, especially if they're from a lower-income population, without understanding how they could finance it, right? You, in any other major purchase you make in life, you understand how the financial possibilities or the financial pathway happens before you jump into that purchase. Higher ed typically offers financial aid as an afterthought, not as a strategic value add to move their students forward through the process. And I think that's just part of what I took away from what you said, Charlie, is that is a key to getting students to start college. For sure. And, and, you know, people are, the colleges are so under-resourced and under-staffed when it comes to financial aid teams. And, you know, the enrollment team isn't necessarily your financial aid team and financial aid is there to be administrators. And they're the liaison between government funds and the student. And they have a compliance role at the end of the day. Enrollment teams are the ones who are, you know, have student advisors on the phone, are truly trying to usher them through the process and they have the responsibility do so. And so FAFSA and financial aid's kind of typically been this gap from app to start. And we're, you know, just really happy to be able to close that loop so that more students can go to school and are not really kind of forgotten or left. And I just want to say before that Joe jump back in to wrap us up that 
I think that's the key component as well in terms of everything you talked about, the services you offer and making there less friction and, and, and freeing up the staff so that you can really focus and, and get the student to have all of the support mechanisms that they need to make this um, a process that doesn't make them stumble through the actual from enrollment to financial aid to um, stepping on stepping foot on campus. And I think for me, I have a Gen Z daughter, she's 22. And she's in, she's she's finishing up like her sophomore year. She didn't start until she was um, eighteen, going on nineteen, and she wasn't too. I think for Gen Zs, a lot of them they're very different from us first gen students. A lot of first gen students, we really saw college as the only alternative, and we were taught that college was the end all be all. And I think unfortunately, what's happening. Joe and I have had many conversations about. ROI and whether college is worth it and, and all the you know talk around on the media about college not really paying off for students. And I think a lot of the, the Gen Zs are, are really making their own judgment call based on, hey, I have a Gen X or parent that's constantly complaining about student loan debt, constantly complaining about making payments, constantly trying to figure out how to do a forbearance or how to navigate the, the, the debt that they racked up during their undergrad or during grad school. And I think the Gen Zs are a lot more hesitant. And I think that we have to, as a sector, really make it easier for them rather than trying to make them fit into our uh, philosophy, which is college is the only way, because I think they're making their own decisions about what they want to do. And like I said, my daughter wasn't super thrilled about the idea of going to college. It was kind of like, well, I guess I'll just try a community college. I'm not even going to go to a state school. I'm just going to start small. Whereas I thought when she was younger that she would go to my alma mater, University of Florida, and that would just be her slide it in. <laughs> but she did. She was not interested at all because I think her perspective was a lot different from mine. My perspective was college or bust, and hers was just like, eh, I'll just kind of take my time and see what I want to do. And, and that's something we have to think about. The Gen Zs and and the students that follow the Gen A generation and and the ones that are coming behind them are going to be a different set of students, and they're going to have a different mind frame. So we have to really think about how to serve them best. So I'm glad that your company and your organization is really doing that. Yeah, for sure. We're so lucky to be doing what we're doing. And 2020 is, was, <laughs> feel like it's still continuing in 2021, a really, really challenging year. And a lot of the stories students have shared are, are totally heartbreaking and, you know, everyone's doing the best they can. And so I think there's, what's, what's really promising is there's a lot of goodwill in this space. There's a lot of great people. And if we put our minds to it, I do believe it, it can get better, but trying to ignore technology and ignore some of the accountability aspects of how we got to where we got um, is not going to make us move fast enough. All right, Charlie, this has been a great episode. We've got two final questions for you. If you've listened to Edda before, you know what they are. Number one, what do we need to know about Frank that we didn't cover today? Anything you have going on, anything you want to say? And number two, what does the future of education look like? Uh, I guess the first one is we're very friendly people and are very open to working with colleges. Sometimes that doesn't necessarily shine through given the student advocacy work that we do, but we are very, very excited to partner with schools and um, it's going to be a great 2021. Um, the future of education, 
I think there's a few themes. Um, the first one, I do still firmly believe in unbundling of education and the commoditization of degrees. I think classes and content will start to be viewed like Netflix and creating really engaging interactive experiences when you learn online. Um, and I think financial aid um, will be a lot, hopefully more streamlined and accessible to people and something that becomes part of high school graduation requirements at every single state, as well as just, you know, front and center as people are applying where they're filling out financial aid even before they're filling out their admissions apps. So I think there's many good things ahead and, and hoping to see shorter degrees and a lot more student success in all types, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, there's room for everybody. Well, if you haven't checked out Frank Financial Aid, you are missing out. What's the website, Charlie? Withfrank.org. All right. Check out withfrank.org and you will not be sorry. There's a lot going on there. You heard it here, ladies and gents, Charlie Javis, founder and CEO of Frank. Until next time. All right. We're done, guys. Sweet. Thank nice you job, so Charlie. That was good. Packed so full fun. of uh, info. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we could have gone on and on and on. We'll need oh, to yeah. Take Joe had two. like a whole roster of questions for you, Charlie. You're lucky I did. didn't, I didn't get, get to, to escape. Um, I didn't, give it, didn't had, even get to him. I think while we were on, the Democrats just released their new COVID relief plan for education, which is moving from $23 billion to $40 billion for colleges. Oh, wow. So I feel like we could uh, we could easily we'll get talk about that session mm -hmm. in on just financial aid and budget reconciliation at this point. And you know, Charlie, I'm thinking about about putting together a panel, a group of folks to talk just about financial aid financing um, uh, uh, coming up. We Liz did a panel on racial injustice a while back. It was very mm -hmm. popular. Mm -hmm. I want to look at one, um, you know, focused really focused on the finances of college. With a number so, of guests we've had, we could have a hell of a panel. So the other. Thing Thing I was going to say for Liz, if you do have, because I know you cover a lot of the racial injustice areas, if you want to do a deep dive of how student loans, like basically, it's just so, it, there's no worse thing than student loans and just the disparate impact it's created um, for so many families that, you know, if you, it, you think education is an equalizer until you take out student debt and you realize it just increases inequality. Yeah. And, and that's something I think is very difficult for most people to wrap their minds around, because I think there is a certain perspective of, hey, access, get a student loan or just whatever your financing needs are and just go to college, finish and go get a job and pay off your loans and stop complaining. Yeah. And that I think that narrative is really unfair. Uh, I grew up in a very, I would say most of the students that went to my high school were considered poverty level. So 80% of them are poverty level, 90% were black, 83% qualified for free lunch. And I was in that number. So when I hear some of the rhetoric, you know, surrounding the idea that students just need to get it together and, you know, just take out their loans and be responsible, it kind of, it's a little triggering because I, I felt like, you know, I, I do feel as though, like you said, there's a lot of blame on the student and not as much accountability on the provider of education, like Amazon ran malls out of business because it was like, hey, if I can get this for $3, why am I going to the mall to spend $20? But nobody's running higher ed out of business because it's like tradition and Ivy covered walls, like what I had when I was at University of Florida, the buildings and, and the experience. But I, I feel as though there isn't the accountability to make sure education is accountable. Just like Jeff Bezos was like, I'm going to 
make sure that people can get stuff and not have to pay an arm and a leg for it. We need to figure out how to reimagine education in the same ways, but I think there's not as much uh, determination to make that happen. So yeah, I'd love to do that. I, I have a lot to say about it. So I I'd love to yeah. schedule a time. I feel like it's talk. a really amazing, amazing topic. Yeah, yeah, good conversation. Sure. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's, let's, um, make, I'm going to make sure I fo I'm following you on LinkedIn, I'm sure. So that oh. we can um, stay in contact so we can do that. For sure. I would love that. And Joe, I'll follow up with you because I'd love to figure out how we how we work together, whether it's like advisory or something, because you just know so many wonderful people and schools. And if you think we could be helpful to any of them, would love to work together on that. Absolutely. Count me in, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Thank you. Take care. Bye. 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 And Liz, I got to go. I got a heart out. Okay. Hey, everybody, we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edip Experience. To learn more about the Edip Experience, please visit our website at www.edipexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edip Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edip Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.